0: Our scripture reading for today is Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden.
1: All right, we um, continue on this morning in the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bible still open to Genesis 4, that's where we're going to be. I had the opportunity to actually go down to Salinas, where most of our extended family is currently, and yesterday was the first time on my side of the family that all eight grandkids were together in the same place, which is important for things like photography and documenting their existence. So there's a lot of pictures, and it was a good time, but it was interesting to sort of have that moment yesterday as I'm thinking about and preparing for this Sermon this morning, this talk on Cain and Abel, this really famous story of the first family, and just, you know, seeing all those kids, being with my siblings, being with my parents, struck yet again at the impact that our families have on us, right? The impact of our families of origin. Whatever that might have looked like for you, there's all kinds of different stories, of course, represented in this room. Things like Birth order, the number of kids in your family, the relationship between parents, the relationships between parents and children, existent or non existent, all those different things create dynamics, right? And there's layers there, and there's all kinds of different ways in which those very powerful relationships shape us. And that shaping can, of course, be both positive and negative. I remember. This wasn't yesterday, but a little while ago. I was having a conversation with my sister, Sarah, who has five kids. So that's the majority of the grandkids right there is that one family. She's got it taken care of. Anyway, we were talking about that, and she was sort of saying how it's an interesting thought exercise for her from time to time to think about each of her individual kids and what they might be like if they weren't with four other little kids all the time. And what she's saying there is... You know, so much of who they are is determined by their relationships with the other siblings, right? And their order in that birth order and all that kind of stuff. All those different things help shape who they are. And I think all of this points us to the truth that we can never fully bear the image of God. We've been talking a lot about what it means to be created in the image of God in this series in Genesis. We can never fully image God on our own in isolation we can only do that through relationship with people only in relationship are we fully human fully alive and so it's interesting to me that from this point on the book of Genesis is really a bunch of stories about families and to be frank they're not necessarily great stories okay there's not a lot of great family stories in the book of Genesis And that's maybe not that encouraging, but at the same time, it is very honest. And it points us to the reality that it's hard to be in relationship with people, right? It's hard to live in right relationship, especially with friends, co-workers, our families, the people that we spend significant amounts of time with. I think this is why Jesus says you should love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself, this is the greatest commandment. And what Jesus is doing in that statement is reminding us that our relationship with God and with people is linked. You cannot separate those two things. And for better or worse, one of the best, most difficult environments to work this out, to work out what it means to love God and love people is, of course, in the context of family. So we're going to look a little bit at the dynamics of this first family, but just real quick, a little bit of review. We're actually, believe it or not, a third of the way through this series in Genesis. You might be thinking, there's 47 chapters left. How are you going to do this? (laughs) I don't know. We'll figure it out. (laughs) We will be picking up speed here very soon, so don't worry too much about that. So far, we've spent the majority of our time looking at these creation stories seeing how God creates the world brings order out of chaos and then looking at what he creates he calls it good and we've spent quite a bit of time unpacking what that goodness means we've seen the Old Testament writers call this goodness shalom this rich Hebrew word shalom and it's a way to describe how God has ordered creation in this web of right relationships relationships in multiple directions between God and humans, humans and each other, humans and creation, this dynamic web of interrelated relationships. Then we've also seen, and this is where we were two weeks ago, that sin is introduced into the story, and as Adam and Eve turn their back on God, they decide to go their own way, they break relationship in all these different directions. They sort of overturn the good ordering of creation. And so sin is both the cause and the result of all of these broken relationships, again, with God, with each other, with creation. But here's the thing. Sin most often manifests itself, makes itself obvious to us in that what I would call horizontal relationship with other people, right? It's in our relationships that sin tends to be the most visible. And it also tends to do its most damage to those who are closest to us. So I think all that being said, it shouldn't surprise us then that after the introduction of sin into the story, the very next story is a story about family and siblings and relational dysfunction. Okay, so Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This story is truly one of the most amazing stories in all of Scripture. It is very sparse in the details that it gives, and yet it's so richly layered. There's all kinds of angles to which we can look at this story. But the story begins with a birth. There's something incredible, amazing about witnessing a birth of a kid. We've been through this twice in our family. I've gotten to experience two births, both of them. Amazing, very different stories, but amazing in their own way. Something incredible about waiting and preparing and anticipating this, and then all of a sudden the process begins, and you go to the hospital or wherever you're going to have the child, and the next thing you know, or sometimes after a long time, (laughs) there's this tiny human being in your arms, breathing and crying and screaming and alive. And that's an amazing thing to be witness to that. So we've been through that twice, but we've actually been pregnant three times. We lost our first pregnancy at about 12 weeks in. And what that teaches you is that this process of bringing life into the world is very fragile. It is a very fragile process. And it is truly amazing. It is truly miraculous when a child is born. And right from the very beginning, Eve understands this. This first child Born to Adam and Eve is a miracle, and she even names it, right? A gift from God. There's some wordplay in the Hebrew here because Cain's name sounds like the Hebrew words to get or to receive. Eve recognizes that this is a gift. This is a miracle, the birth of this child. Verse 2 again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker. Of the ground. So here, another gift, another miracle. This first family is growing. But pay attention to Abel's name, too. Abel sounds like the Hebrew words vapor or nothingness. There's this sort of tragic foreshadowing going on here in the text. Abel is not going to be long for this story. Among other things, I think this helps us clarify and understand what God means back in chapter 3 when he says that Eve's pain in childbirth will be multiplied. There's obviously a physical part of that, but I think there's an emotional part of that as well. Having children is a blessing, a joy, a miracle, but children can also cause tremendous grief and heartache. And again, there's not a lot of details given in this story, but I do think part of the story is the pain that Adam and Eve must have felt when their two sons cannot get along. Now, we don't know about, again, all the background there, how this family develops. We don't know about how these two boys relate to each other, but the one thing we are told is that they choose two different professions. One's a farmer and one is a shepherd, And you don't have to be a super interpreter of Scripture to guess that there might be some backstory to that, right? Especially if you know siblings and brothers and rivalries and all these kinds of things. Raises some questions. Did Abel not want to be like his brother? Did you see his brother Cain working in the field and say, I don't want to do that? Did Cain resent Abel for not following in his footsteps? Again, we don't know for sure what all the dynamics are there, but many commentators look at this as being a critical piece to interpreting the story. There's good reasons for this. We've talked a lot throughout this series about how these early chapters in the book of Genesis are interacting with stories from other peoples and cultures of the ancient Near East. And in many of those stories, the gods will prefer one of these two professions. They'll prefer shepherds or they will prefer farmers. And so again, some people kind of see that and they make the connection to this story and they kind of feel like maybe God is choosing one over the other. But as we have seen all throughout these first couple chapters of Genesis, even though there's all these overlaps and similarities, God is in the business of demonstrating how he is different from these other gods. And so as we'll see moving through this, this is not really a story about career choice or dueling professions this is yet another opportunity for Yahweh to prove himself to be different to be radically different from these other gods now verse 3 in the course of time came brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions one of my favorite phrases in all of scripture <laughs> And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain and Abel bring these different offerings, these sacrifices from their labor as an act of worship. This raises the question, how did they know to do this? Where does this impulse come from? God hasn't said anything yet to this point about making sacrifices, about how to do worship, about anything like that. This sort of comes out of the blue. But remember, we're only a chapter removed from the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve enjoyed this incredible intimate relationship with God. And so whether this was commanded or not, I think what it demonstrates is the recognition of the distance that exists now between humans and God. There's this impulse to want to close that gap to want to regain that kind of intimacy, to try to do something to make the relationship right. So Cain, being a farmer, brings some produce. Abel, the shepherd, some of his flock. There are, I think, a couple of really good reasons why God might prefer Abel's offering to Cain's. And we'll get into that in just a minute. But first, I think we need to sit with the reality of God's choice, his choosing, Not so much what he chooses, but just the fact that God chooses. Okay, God has agency. And God can choose what God wants. And what God wants does not always line up with what we want. This is a stark truth, but it is a truth that we must accept if we want to live in right relationship, in our rightful place, in the good ordering of creation. So how we respond to not getting what we want reveals volumes about our character. My daughter is three and a half, which means that sometimes when she doesn't get what she wants, she throws a tantrum. Anybody familiar with a tantrum? Hmm. According to the dictionary, a tantrum is an uncontrolled outburst of anger and frustration, typically in a young child. That makes it sound really kind of nice and cute. The dictionary doesn't say anything about the blood-curdling screams, the snot, and the tears, the throwing down of the body on the ground, and the flailing of the arms and the legs. And that's just me responding to her tantrum. (laughs) It's a mess. (laughs) Now, she's three and a half, right? So this is just sort of part of the process. This is what kids do, and as a parent, the goal is to move them out of that eventually, right? When she's 23, our hope is that it will have toned down a little bit, (laughs) just a little bit. It's kind of funny, right? But the truth is, is that a lot of us still do this. We may not have the full-blown, you know, throw my face down in the ground and kick and scream, but we still throw tantrums when we don't get what we want. And I think that when you begin to peel back the layers of our adult tantrums, at their heart, they reveal an anger and disappointment with God. Because he didn't give us what we wanted. He didn't choose what we wanted him to choose. Now remember, Genesis is all about revealing reminding the people of Israel in particular who Yahweh is, what he is like, what he is all about. But there's also, all throughout the book, these sort of reminders of the mystery of Yahweh, that he cannot be explained away, he cannot be rationalized, he certainly cannot be bribed or wooed the way that some of these other gods in the ancient Near East could be. Yahweh will have regard for what he wants. He will choose what he wants to choose. Israel and us, we want it to be neat and tidy. We, we want this nice explanation. God likes meat and not vegetables. But that's not what the story is about. The story isn't about providing that level of clarity. God will choose what he wants. Now, that being said, again, I think there are some clues here. There are some things that point us to why God might choose Abel's sacrifice over Cain's but before we go there I just wanted us to sit with that truth for a moment God gets to decide not us now what we are told in this story is that Abel brings his firstborn his fat portions again one of my favorite phrases (laughs) the best of his best Cain brings an offering of the fruit of the ground of his produce that he had grown But there's no sort of explanation there. We don't know, was this the best of the best? might have been good fruit. We have no idea. All we know for sure is that Abel brought his best and Cain brought something. Now look at how Cain responds. Cain was very angry and his face fell. Adult tantrum. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So as this story unfolds, we begin to understand why God might not have held Cain's offering in high regard. There's clearly some unresolved issues here in Cain's heart. God's choice is exposing Cain's character. And he becomes angry and then sort of depressed, and it's here that the story moves from God's choice to Cain's choice. What is Cain going to do with this? A psychologist will tell you, anger almost always points to a deeper hurt, deeper wound. And this angry reaction reveals that Cain has, again, what a psychologist, a counselor might call a disordered attachment. He has put an awful lot of stock into getting approval. And again, we don't totally know why. Maybe he was the firstborn. Life had been sort of easy for him. This is his first big disappointment. Maybe he didn't get enough attention from Adam and Eve. Don't know all the backstory and the reasons here. But what we do know is that when God doesn't have regard for his offering, he freaks out. And his world begins to unravel because he had put way too much weight into seeking approval. So what is Cain's choice here? What is at stake for Cain here? God lays it out through a series of questions. Why are you angry? Why did your face fall? Maybe another way of saying it is, don't you understand that I am God? I can choose what I want. And if you recognize that, Cain, you will do well. Now, ultimately, this is a story about worship. Abel Worshipped wholeheartedly, he gave the first, the best, the fat portions, which raises the question: Does God really need our best? First Samuel 15:22, "Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. God does not need our best. He's not looking for prime rib or whatever the equivalent of that might be. He doesn't need Cain's best corn. What he wants is Cain. Cain's whole heart. So God is asking Cain, do you worship me or do you worship my approval of you? Do you want relationship with me or do you want the benefits of a relationship with with me and then the next bit of that section of the text reveals just how much is at stake here for Cain this is a question with significant implications because the next thing that God says is this Cain sin is crouching at your door and sin is not a nice little house kitty who wants to come in and like have a sip of milk sin is a raging beast that wants to rip your face off And so the question for Cain, will sin take you over or will you rule over sin? That word rule should ring a bell if you've been around for the last couple weeks of this series. It calls us back to Genesis 1. It calls us back to what it means to be an icon, an image bearer of God. That ability to rule, to subdue, to have dominion over. So again, the question is what will Cain do? Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Yet another mystery in the text. What do they talk about? No idea what they talk about, but we know the result. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Sin crouches and Cain opens the door and it pounces. It overtakes Cain. He does not rule over it. And so God comes to have a conversation about this. Where is Abel your brother, he said. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? There's all kinds of parallels here with Genesis chapter 3. Okay, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve abdicate their role, their call to keep, protect the garden. Cain abdicates his role as his brother's keeper. Adam and Eve violate their relationship with God and with each other. Cain has violated his relationship with God and with his brother. Sin pounces, causes incredible damage in both stories. And then in the aftermath, God comes asking a question. Remember his question in Genesis 3? Where are you? Where are you? Why are you hiding from me? And here, where is your brother? Cain asked this question that reverberates in our culture today. Am I my brother's keeper? Again, we've seen this word keep before back in Genesis chapter 2. Adam's role in the garden was to keep, to protect, to watch over it. Cain, the older brother, is to keep, to protect, to watch over his brother. Of course he's his brother's keeper. The great commandment that we quoted earlier in this talk reminds us that yes, of course we're our brother's keeper. Of course we're to protect and look out for each other, and when we don't, it leads to all kinds of trouble, all kinds of heartache. Cain abdicates his role as the older brother, but ultimately Cain's issue is not his brother. Cain's issue is not Abel. This is a story about dealing with God and about the brokenness of our relationship with him. You see, anger with people is really misdirected anger with God. And this is, again, a somber truth in the reality of the last 24 hours here in our country. But anger with people, violence directed towards people, is simply a physical expression of our anger and disappointment with God. God chose what we didn't want. God has let us down in some way, and so we take it out on those around us. Violence can take on all kinds of forms. Murder, of course, is the most dramatic. But violence includes everything from lashing out, passive aggressiveness, gossip, slander, and I mean, that list can go on and on, right? We do violence to one another in all kinds of ways, but at the root of that is anger and disappointment with God. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Again, all kinds of parallels to chapter 3. Similar consequences, just exaggerated even further. The ground in Genesis 3 becomes cursed. Remember, Adam's work becomes cursed painful, and laborious, now it will be even less productive for Cain. And of course, Adam and Eve experienced this displacement from the garden. It is now more pronounced for Cain as he becomes a wanderer. Cain doesn't like this. <laughs> My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Cain has the audacity to cast himself as the victim here. Again, how often do we do this, right? Cain's still not getting it. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of of Eden. Now, some have seen the mark of Cain as a curse, but I think a very simple, careful reading here reveals that the mark is not a curse. The mark is, in fact, a grace. And again, a parallel back to chapter 3, just as God covered Adam and Eve. Remember, Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, and then God provides them a better covering. In the same way God will cover Cain, God will keep Cain, even though Cain could not keep his brother. Now, as we tie all of this together, one thing that I want to make very, very clear about this story. Cain's half-hearted offering back at the beginning of the story is not really the problem. that's not the violation that he commits in this story because some people will read this story and look at it as a call to do more, to give more. So that God will be pleased with us. But the sacrifice that Cain makes is in many ways actually the end of the story. It's simply the revelation of the deeper stuff, the deeper darkness in Cain's heart. So the question we should be asking is not so much, what can we do? What more can we do so that God will be happy with me? But the question is really, what is going on in your heart? What is really going on in your heart? The good news about Jesus is that he is a better older brother than Cain. In Hebrews, we read that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I love that phrase. Jesus' blood speaks a better word. What is that better word? It's that Jesus himself covers us, protects us, keeps us, makes us right with God. Not because we earn it. Not because we do well, it's simply a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So let's just say it again one more time. This is not a story about earning God's approval. This is a story about the destructive powers of sin in our lives, in particular, when we let our anger and disappointment with God go unchecked. This is a story about wrestling with God. When we're not at peace with God, we tend to go looking for approval in all kinds of places, most of them the wrong place. And then when we don't find approval, we do violence. We direct our anger with God onto those around us. So two questions, they're sort of interrelated questions, two sides of the same coin, but two questions we need to sit with this morning. The first is this, are you at peace with God? Are you at peace with God or are you holding on to anger and disappointment with him? God's question to Cain comes back to us here, will we do well and rule over the sin that is crouching at our door or will we allow that anger to open the door And let that beast that's just outside come in now how do we find peace with God very simple we repent of all the ways we've broken relationship with God and with people and we accept that free gift of grace that free gift of salvation of right relationship with God now and on into eternity that gift that's made available to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's as simple as that. So the flip side of that question is, what are your fat portions? That's sort of funny. You can laugh at that. It's okay. But in all honesty, what does it look like for you To worship God wholeheartedly. Now remember, the worship, the offering that we see in this story is simply an outward manifestation of an inward reality. Abel was at peace with God and free to offer his best. Free to offer everything that he had. Cain was far from at peace with God, trying to earn approval through his offering. These questions are linked because the fat portions that we hold on to tend to reveal the places in our lives where we are angry and disappointed with God. It tends to be the places where we have a difficult time trusting God to take care of us. So what is that area for you? I have no idea. It could be your money, your time, your relationships, your fears, your dreams, your addictions, your jobs, your expectations, your wounds. What I do know is that when we are at peace with God, we are able to give of those things freely. Today we celebrated and commissioned Scott in Genoa. When I think of what it looks like to offer a fat portion, I think of our interns. <laughs> Interning at Regen is not glamorous. It's not the kind of thing that builds your resume. Giving up a year of your life in your 20s to serve a church, that's a fat portion. Now that's just one example. And by no means is that the only or best example. I have no idea what it looks like for you. So again, just... Those two simple questions. Are you at peace with God? What are your fat portions? Maybe another way of saying it is what are you holding on to? What are you struggling to let go of this morning? You should have received a three-by-five card when you came in. If you didn't, we have a whole bunch up here in the front. What I want you to do with those this morning is this is just going to be a real tangible, simple way to respond to those questions, to sort of name what you're holding on to, what you're angry about. And then what we're going to do is we're going to put them into this silver box that's up here on the table during our communion time. And no one's going to read these cards. We're not checking on them or anything. This is totally a moment for you to symbolically say, I'm letting that go. I'm not going to hold on to that anymore anymore. So again, I don't know what you need to say. I don't know. I don't know what you need to write down. It could be an area of your life where you need to name and let go of anger. Maybe some other thing that you're holding on to that you need to give up. But allow this moment to be a moment of letting go so that you can be at peace with God. So that you can worship wholeheartedly, worship freely and give of your best the way that Abel gave of his best. I'm going to pray here in just a moment. The band will come back. During this time we're going to Take communion, and again, as you prepare for that, I encourage you to write something on those cards. And when you come to take communion with us, you can just drop them in here and then take the elements. Communion is this moment where we remember what Jesus has done for us, that Jesus is our better, older brother, that he protects us and keeps us and makes us right with God. We know this because of his death and his resurrection. We celebrate that in these really simple elements in this meal, the cracker representing his body, the cup representing his blood, broken and shed for us, that we might have right relationship with God. So this morning as we head into this moment, again, sit with those questions, take some time to reflect, to search your heart, and when you're ready, come and drop those things off, take communion with us, and be free as you worship this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you this morning with heavy hearts, knowing the violence in our nation that's happened in the last 24 hours, but also knowing the violence that is there in our heart. And God, this story, this text reveals to us that at the root of that is a broken relationship with you, a deep, unresolved anger towards you. And so God, I pray this morning for peace. Certainly peace in our country, but also peace in our hearts. Peace between people and you, right relationship between you and us. So God, this morning as we take communion, as we reflect on the story of Cain and Abel, may we be able to take some steps towards letting go of the things that we hold on to. Letting go of the things that we turn to for approval, that we put our trust in instead of putting our trust in you. Help us to name those things and to let go of those things so that we may be at peace with you, and we may worship you wholeheartedly. And God, most of all, we are grateful this morning that you have not left us in this place of disconnection, broken relationship, distance from you, but through Jesus you have come close, you have reconciled us. And you simply offer that relationship as a gift to us. So I pray that we would accept that, that we would grow deeper in our knowledge and understanding of that. May that be reflected this morning, God, in our worship of you now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.